Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at an incredible story that began really with the opening of Acts chapter 3. It started Peter and John going to the temple during the hour of prayer, encountering a lame man, a man who had been lame for 40 years. It's an incredible scene. Peter says, silver and gold I don't have, but in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And an incredible miracle took place there within the temple. And following this incredible miracle, Peter, to give a defense and an explanation for what they were seeing, uh, preaches a sermon. Now, this sermon was received kindly by some, 5,000 are added to the church, but there's an opposition that arises as well. They rush in, the priests, the elders, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, they arrest Peter and John, even the lame man, they throw them into prison for it was approaching sundown, and then these three men stood trial. Against the same ruling body that had crucified Jesus, they stood to give an account, to give a testimony, and filled with the Holy Spirit, these men didn't back down, but boldly proclaimed that the miracle that had occurred had been done in the name of Jesus. Well, finding no way to punish them, for indeed a miracle had taken place, this group of religious men decide that the best course of action, at least the most uh, politically less toxic course of action, would be to release them, to threaten them, to draw a line in the sand. We don't want any of this behavior anymore. But ultimately to release them. For the miracle had occurred, the people had seen it. How do you work around that? So these men are released. And they report back to their companions real friends, people that they're sharing life, that they're experiencing life with, and they give a report. And then there's an incredible prayer that we looked at last week that comes after the report that was given, a prayer that the Lord would not remove the opposition that was growing, but rather give them the strength, the boldness to be able to push through, to push forward, to endure. Credibly, in response to their prayer, there was an answer. For the place shook in which they were meeting, and the Holy Spirit was poured out again upon the church, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And where we left off last Sunday, we're told that they were filled by this filling with a boldness to proclaimly preach the word. Now, we've been examining these events from what I would call a micro perspective. We've been into the nitty gritty. We've taken several weeks to work our way through, in no particular hurry, but wanting to soak up as much as the Lord would have for us. And though it's important to study the details of Scripture, on occasion, and as I'm listening to various pastors throughout uh, the book of Acts on my own time, I see that they fall prey to the same trap. You get into the nitty-gritty, but you never take a moment to just take a step back and to take the events and to clarify them or contextualize them to the bigger picture of why the book was written to begin with, Luke's overarching purpose behind Acts. Now, we mentioned this in our introduction, the very first study, that both Luke's gospel and the book of Acts were written to be presented as a defense brief on behalf of the Apostle Paul. And it's with this in mind that the guy in which this book is is addressed, Theophilus, the same guy that the Gospel of Luke is also addressed, we're operating under the assumption that because Paul, at the close of Acts, is standing trial, that this man, Theophilus, was more than likely the Roman official charged with compiling the background on this particular case. Now, since Rome allowed the freedom of worship They allowed people the freedom to worship their own gods, a sense of autonomy. Christianity 
had enjoyed legal status because Rome had just simply viewed Christianity as being a sect of Judaism. And because Judaism had already been ruled on, had already been deemed to be, to be okay within the Roman laws, as it were, Christianity enjoyed legal status because it was just viewed as being another form of Judaism that the Jews particularly enjoyed. However, something happens along the, the course of time. You see, Christianity, from beginning as particularly a, a Jewish thing, Jesus being a Jew, the early church being Jews, some, something took place. As the gospel is spreading, it makes a jump. It, it leaps out of just Jewish communities into Gentile communities. And from that point forward, the gospel of Jesus takes the world over like a wildfire. It spreads. And because it's moved from Jewish communities to Gentile communities, it's no longer being protected as if it were a sect of Judaism, but now Rome would have to evaluate Christianity in order for it to retain legal status. Though Acts will end with the Apostle Paul standing trial before Caesar Nero, the case itself was more about the legitimacies of Christianity. Obviously, if Christianity is found legal, Paul's released, no big deal. But if found illegal, well, Paul would be beheaded. As a defense brief, Luke sets out in the book of Acts, and we mentioned this in our first study, to demonstrate to this man, Theophilus, three important things. First, Christianity was not a political threat to Roman governance. Two, Christianity would not foster social unrest within the empire. And thirdly, Christianity, it was already legal because it was the true fulfillment of Judaism. Now, by including the events that we looked at over the last couple weeks, the, the events of, of Acts 3 and Acts chapter 4, Luke is clarifying a couple things to Theophilus. He's going on the record as he's presenting the story. We've looked at it from the micro perspective. Now we want to place it into the greater context of the book. He's communicating three simple truths to Theophilus. First, the animus of the Jewish religious establishment, their hostility towards Christianity, <laughs> It had occurred way before Paul had ever been involved. Right from the beginning, we see here an opposition to Christianity and the followers of Jesus by the religious establishment. Secondly, the Jewish leaders who at this time were accusing Paul of sedition had a track record, long as could be, of being disingenuous in the way that they handled those that they opposed, those that were leading this movement of Christianity. We saw that. They understood that the miracle had happened, that an incredible miracle had happened. They couldn't deny it. And instead, they threatened them. Instead of embracing it, they threatened them. And they tried to tamp it down. That's disingenuous. And really, if they did this then, as Paul standing trial, being accused by the Jews, could their testimony be trusted? Luke is setting a track record of how these men handle these type of situations as a defense. Thirdly, as we're about to see in the text we'll look at this morning, the church, it had a peaceful and redeeming effect on society. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, Luke tells us that this prayer meeting, as a result of it, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and we looked at it already, that this initial, this filling, this fresh filling of the Spirit produced a boldness to speak the truth of God's word. 
But as we'll see in the remaining verses of chapter 4, in addition to boldness to speak the word of God, the Spirit will also foster within the church unity and generosity. If you want to know if the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is really working in and through a church community, there really are three tangible indicators. We'll call them evidence of a spirit-filled church. First, a spirit-filled church will speak the truth of God's word with boldness. If you go to a church that isn't speaking the truth of God's word, that isn't opening up scripture and speaking in boldness because, hey, the truth divides, doesn't it? The truth can even offend, but that there's a boldness to proclaim these things regardless of what opposition might exist. That's evidence of the spirit at work within that church within society. Secondly, a spirit-filled church will be unified by their love for Jesus and their love for one another. And thirdly, a spirit-filled church will be filled with generous people. You should also note, as an aside, that the spirit's work in your life will be seen in the same three ways. Do you have a boldness to speak God's word? Do you have a desire for unity, companionship, connectivity with other believers? And thirdly, are you generous? You see, the existence of these three things is often evidence of the, the filling of the Spirit of God. The absence of these things is often evidence that we need to be filled anew. Verse 32, Acts chapter 4, we read, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart, one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. This spirit-induced unity could be seen. It was tangible. It could be seen in the fact that those who believed were first, note, of one heart. This is actually one Greek word, cardia, which in addition to being a reference of the old ticker, can also be used in Greek language as indicating the seat of a person's passion or their desire or their will. So they're of one heart, but then they're of one soul. And whereas heart, one heart is one Greek word, one soul is actually two. Mia, meaning only one, and psyche, meaning the breath of life. It indicated kind of the source of the life within the organism itself. One heart, one soul. And the structure of this phrase, it's fascinating in what it communicates. You see, Luke is telling us that it was because each individual within the church community possessed the same heart. They each had the same heart or the same passion. They were able to collectively had the same psyche or soul or life. Please note this means that it's impossible to have unity or to be of one soul without having the same core passion or to be of one heart. The church was unified with one collective soul because they all individually had the same heart. They shared the same heart. Their unity was based in the fact that they all shared a common, a singular passion for Jesus, a desire to see his kingdom 
further beyond anything else. A love for Jesus and a desire to see the gospel go into the world. This was all of their passion. Understand the cross and Christ crucified should create a bond between believers that transcends any of the trivial things that might separate us, that might come between us. As a matter of fact, all of the things that often cause disunity among the brethren, among the church, are things that are actually trivial if we place them in context to the magnitude of God's grace. The fact that salvation, us being saved, has nothing to do with us. It's simply a gift of God that we're all enjoying. It's not because I'm better than you or you're better than me or I love Jesus more than you. It's all about God's grace. And when we place God's grace as being the most important thing, everything that might divide becomes trivialized. You know, most of the problems that breed contention within the church occur when our passion and our focus becomes anything other than Jesus and his kingdom. If our passions aren't in sync, well, our lives are not in sync, which makes unity, genuine, spirit-induced unity impossible. You know, the Bible speaks at length, at nauseam, constantly about the importance of there being unity within the church. Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 23, he said, I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Unity. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, the Apostle Paul pleaded with the church that in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, may you agree with one another so that there may be no division and that you may be perfectly united in both mind and thought. Again, in Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 6, the Apostle Paul commands us to be completely humble. This is you, this is me. To be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Philippians 2, 1 through 4, Paul encourages believers to be like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each, you and me, esteem others better than ourselves. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, which means it's okay to look out for your own interests, but also we need to look out for the interests of others. You know why the Bible is constantly encouraging unity? Because people don't get along. <laughs> like the Bible's consistently revisiting this theme because naturally speaking, we don't get along with each other. Like it, it's, it's, it was always a problem, thus the Bible's constantly addressing it. No, the Bible's constantly addressing it with the early church, the first church. If Paul has to consistently remind believers to get along, what's that often evidence of? that they weren't getting along. As a result of the sin of human, human beings, sin, back to Genesis 3, we see separation of people, feuding between people, divorce, warring with one another, segregation. Since Eden, people have not gotten along with each other and the, the culprit, 
is our sinful nature. Now, this natural tendency is why Jesus said in John 13, verse 35, that the world will know you. The world will know that you're a disciple of Jesus. How? By your love for one another. Think about it for a moment. If disunity is the natural order of our world, then unity can only be attributed as being otherworldly. You see, unity, as intrinsically unnatural to a world of sin, can only be achieved. It can only be attained. It can only exist within a community of different kinds of people when the Holy Spirit has filled us and is working through us. While it's true unity can't exist without the conformity of passions, many make the mistake, the tragic mistake, of assuming that unity also necessitates the conformity of activity. Yes, unity demands the conformity of passion, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it demands the necessity of the conformity of activity. Because God created us all unique, it's simply a reality that the way we each demonstrate our singular passion for Jesus, for Christ, will inevitably manifest itself in different ways from one another. This is why the greater question when it comes to this topic of unity is whether or not the heart behind different passion, the heart behind passion that manifests into activity is one and the same. It's easy to look at different activity and to say, well, that's disunity. But look beyond the activity to see what the motivating passion is. And if the motivating passion behind differing activity is one and the same, then unity can be achieved. Tragically, church leaders often blur the lines between unity and uniformity. Uniformity narrowly believes that the same passion for Jesus should and could only manifest itself through the same activity, whereas real biblical unity, while still maintaining the necessity of the same passion, allows for a diversity of, of activity. Church leaders should always remember that just because a person's passion for Jesus manifests itself in a different way doesn't mean that that person is sowing the seeds of disunity. We should never forget, as a church, that unity, real unity, biblical unity, spirit-filled unity, allows for a diversity of, act, of, of action and not the uniformity of activity. Here's the trap that happens for many churches. It's Admiral Akbar said, the trap, it's a trap. The trap for churches is this. First, over time, the vision passion. For the church, it narrows. Now, though it's not always a cognitive decision and most often not malicious in intention, instead of the vision simply being about Jesus and his kingdom, the vision narrows. Specifically, it narrows to an issue that the pastor or the group of elders are passionate about. Things like politics, homeschooling, social reform, maybe even a moral stance of some kind, becomes the dominant vision within the church. And since now the vision has narrowed to being other things but Jesus and his kingdom, which is quite broad, it becomes now only natural that the mission or the activities of the church also narrow. Because vision drives activity, 
everything this church now does focuses only on fulfilling a singular vision. And at this point, each individual within the church is forced to either rally behind this narrow vision and this narrow mission or end up being accused of fostering disunity, even sometimes being accused of rebellion. Though these churches might claim unity among the brethren, in actuality, the ministry model only produces a uniformity of the brethren to the people setting the vision and the ones establishing the mission. Sadly, these leaders end up falsely accusing good people of being rebellious, when in reality, these people simply wanted the freedom to allow their passion for Jesus to manifest in a way that was consistent with who God made them uniquely to be. When it's all said and done, these churches inappropriately set the bar for unity on things other than Jesus and his kingdom, and a result of that is that they end up, well, they end up being known as judgmental, They end up being known as legalistic. They're often dominated by bullies. And when it's all said and done, they lack any form of ministry diversity. Now, now contrast that with this church. You see, this church here in Acts was genuinely unified by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because their common passion, loving Jesus and reaching the world, was broad enough to allow a diversity of activity. How this common passion could manifest through each person individually, specifically. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, the Apostle Paul, he says this, and with this in mind, kind of, kind of process it. Jesus himself gave some. Now, he's going to give a diversity of activity. Some of you are apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So some of you have a diversity of activity. For, and now he lays out the common passion behind this diversity of action, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. You do different things, but because you have the same passion, the edification of the church, it's all good, baby. It's all good. It can manifest itself individually till we all come to the unity of the faith. Interesting, Paul throws in unity and, in doing so, the knowledge of of the Son of God. At Calvary 316, we believe, we've plastered it on our wall, actually. We believe the core passion, the vision of the church. Like, if you want to be part of Calvary 316, you you got to rally around the vision, and it's simple. Love Jesus and desire to further his kingdom. So that's our vision. If you're like, I, I like that, then you can get along. That's our passion. If you're not down with that, you should leave, just being honest. Because we're going to love Jesus, and we're going to seek to further his kingdom. But then we're also going to have a core activity or a core mission. And that is very simple to encourage and equip individual Christians to fulfill their ministry, which we would define as the unique expression of your passion for Jesus. And we believe that the best way to do that, to help you 
fulfill your passion for Jesus, through your ministry for Jesus, well, we think it's by teaching the whole Bible that Jesus will grow you into a whole Christian so that you can go into the world. And with great power, verse 33, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all, nor were there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the feet of the apostles, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. The Holy Spirit's clearly at work within this church. It can be seen through their boldness to proclaim the word of God, their unity, their love for one another, and now it can be seen through their generosity. Luke first mentions what what we would call this communism, that they had all things in common. He first mentioned that it was manifested after the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit within the church community at the end of Acts chapter 2. But now that the church has more than doubled in size, Luke wants to reiterate that this same communism, this same generosity, this generous spirit, the atmosphere of the church hadn't changed. So in Acts 2, when there's 3,000 added, they had this communism, this generosity between each other, the manifestation of their koinonia, their life sharing with, with one another. But now that the church has doubled, it's still there. I love that. It's still there. But what's different about these verses, verses Acts 2, is that now Luke will give us a little more information as to how this generosity really worked. He tells us that first, people were freely selling their possessions, specifically land, houses. Communism, as we've defined it before, declares that what is mine is yours, meaning that it's a generosity that's not mandated. It's not demanded. It's not coerced, even by the apostles. You see, communism speaks of something that's free. It's a manifestation of my love for God and my love for others, and it just flows that way. Nobody's telling me I have to do it. No one's throwing a guilt trip. I can love God generously by caring for other people, and that can be a natural manifestation, a spontaneous act brought by the Holy Spirit. So people were freely selling their possessions. But secondly, once they had sold the possessions, Luke tells us that they brought and therefore entrusted the proceeds to the apostles. This word proceeds is the Greek word time which literally means the value by which the price was fixed. It's kind of the idea that when they sold their land, they didn't just give the profit. You know, like, well, we need to get fair market value. If we get anything above that, we'll give that to the Lord. No, it was, Lord, this is now your land. We want to sell it. Whatever you bring for that land is yours. Like, that's the idea behind proceeds. It was the fixed price at the sell point not whatever was was over the top. And we're told that they laid these proceeds at the apostles' feet. And this presents an interesting idea. These generous, free individuals, they were giving to God, yes, of their financial resources. So they're giving to God. It's your land, God. I'm going to sell it. Whatever you bring, it's yours. So they're giving they're selling their land, they're giving, it's all God's, I'm giving it to God, but how did then they give it to God? They gave it directly to the apostles. So 
that there would be enough resources for the apostles to then effectively care for the needs of the church. This is the model or how it's presented here in Acts chapter 4. Now, before we unpack this, I want to acknowledge that whenever a pastor stumbles upon the topic of giving, and this was not my intention, we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So this is not an indicator that the church finances have dipped to a low, and so now the shakedown is coming. That's not the intention. We're just faithfully teaching God's word, going verse by verse by verse. And so, our sermon is not about to take a right turn to becoming a fundraising pitch. You know, when it comes to giving, I think pastors make one of two tragic mistakes. There are some pastors, and they don't have to go by name, you know who they are, who overemphasize giving. I mean, that's probably saying it nicely, right? They overemphasize giving. And, and the, the tragedy of doing that is that the result is that they're misrepresenting God. Sadly, the shakedown techniques that are used by these pastors, they're designed to guilt people into giving by presenting a God who's destitute. I mean, God is on the verge of bankruptcy. And as I'm making this pitch, my jerry curl grows. <laughs> because God needs your money as much as you need God. You want to see foreclosure and bankruptcy signs on this building, on this church, on this work of God? You know who I'm talking about. They overemphasize it. They want to guilt people into giving. And when this starts happening, if you're like me, you kind of shift to the right side of your seat so that you can really fill your wallet, you know? <laughs> like there's special pews with vacuums that just suck the money right out of you. And you're like, I don't want to give, but this stinks. And like, I got to throw something in the plate. And if there's not enough, they pass it again. <laughs> this happens. And it's sad. It's tragic. Let me be clear. Let me be abundantly clear. God doesn't need your money. His church will thrive without it. And it's wrong when a pastor intentionally guilts a person into giving. Matter of fact, I feel pity for those pastors because one day they'll stand before God and give an account. You see, if you can't give with a joyful heart, the Bible just says don't give at all. And I mean that. This is not a sales pitch to guilt you into anything. So there are, there are pastors, when it comes to money, they overemphasize it and they misrepresent God. But... There are other pastors, and I actually think that this, this is predominant within the Calvary Chapel movement, who de-emphasize giving. And the tragic result is that they're also misrepresenting God. Now, pastors, they tend to take this approach as a reaction to the first set of abuses. And yet, while understandable, reactionary theology never arrives at the truth of Scripture because it swings the pendulum to the other extreme. You see, since the Bible presents giving as being a deeply spiritual issue, it's fitting that Jesus spoke about money and giving more than any other person in Scripture. That a pastor has a moral responsibility to be a good pastor, to speak the truth of God's word in boldness. It's a manifestation of the Spirit, not fear that you're like, oh, snap, we're going to talk about giving. 
hey, I'm going to speak the truth because this is where we're at. You see, in much of the same way that a pastor would be derelict in his duties, if he avoided speaking about sexual immorality simply because the subject matter made people a little uncomfortable, a pastor cannot skirt the issue of giving as a deeply spiritual issue just because it causes people uneasiness. Though a pastor makes a grave mistake when he overemphasizes giving, he is in equal error when he de-emphasizes or downplays the importance of giving. There are two points concerning generosity, concerning giving from our text that I want to bring to your attention. First, being generous with your financial resources is not optional. Let me repeat that. Boldness. Being generous with your financial resources is not optional for a believer. This passage illustrates what reality, that generosity is, is evidence of a spirit-filled Christian. It's been said generosity is the most natural outward expression of an inner attitude of compassion and loving kindness. Oswald Chambers made this fascinating observation. He said, God never estimates what we give from impulse. We are given credit for what we determine in our hearts to give, for the giving that is governed by a fixed determination. The Spirit of God revolutionizes our philanthropic instincts. Much of our philanthropy is simply the impulse to save ourselves from an uncomfortable feeling. But the Spirit of God alters all that. As saints, our attitude towards giving is that we give for Jesus Christ's sake and for no other motive. See, the Holy Spirit does more than prompt the occasional act of generosity. Rather, the Spirit changes the inner constitution of an individual by instilling within them a deep desire to be generous. It's a manifestation of the Spirit of God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, Paul told Timothy, the pastor of a church, to command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy, let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. It should be pointed out that Scripture speaks of giving as being a matter of obedience to God, of stewardship of God's resources, faith in God's providential care, as well as generosity and giving being an act of your worship. In Proverbs 3, verse 9, we're told to honor God with our possessions and with the first fruits of our increase. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, that God loves, he loves it. It brings him joy when there is a cheerful giver or literally a hilarious giver. Have you ever wondered, what can I do? I mean, you're at the cross, the magnitude of God's grace, everything that God has given you, and you're standing there in awe of God's goodness. And you're like, how can I? How can I show him how thankful I am for all that he's given me? Have you ever felt that way? I have. Well, Scripture provides you an answer. Be generous. 
The second point I want to bring to your attention from the text. First, obviously, that being generous with your financial resources is not optional. But secondly, supporting the church you attend is encouraged. Not only does this idea seem consistent with the precedent established in Acts 4. Now, I understand there's only one church, so it's not like they could give their money elsewhere. But at the same time, there's a precedent here that they sold their possessions, they brought it to the leadership of the church that they were going to so that they could then meet the needs of the church that they called home. There are several passages that reinforce the importance of financially supporting the local church that you've chosen to be a part of. Douglas LeBlanc made this observation in an article published in Christianity Today which I don't typically enjoy Christianity today all that much, but this article caught my attention. It's titled, Is Is It Stealing from God to Split Your Tithe Between the Church and Other Charities? Now, there are three different people that write within the article providing three different perspectives, but Doug LeBlanc, his, his take jumped out at me. He said this, he said, How I donate money expresses power. If I carve into my tithe, slices of my own making, I tighten my grip on power. And then mammon tightens its grip on me. I am better aware of the ever-deepening joy found in God's generosity when I surrender control of the first 10% to the community that has welcomed me, a wretched sinner, week after week. Though there's no problems with you giving and supporting charitable organizations. I do. I would encourage you to. I think Scripture presents at least this concept that you should do so after you've supported your local church. Now, quick recap. People were selling freely, no coercion, freely of their possessions. They brought and entrusted the proceeds to the apostles. But now thirdly, it was the job of the apostles to then distribute the financial resources appropriately. It's clear that as part of the management of these funds, it became the responsibility of the church leadership to allocate these funds for the specific purpose of addressing the needs of the church community. Understand, if your skepticism as to how the church leadership manages and allocates your financial offering, the one you're giving to God, and that skepticism is prohibiting you from giving, Well, first, you need to be generous, so that's not optional. Secondly, I would encourage you to find a church that you do trust the leadership and how they handle the money. If that's prohibiting you because, man, it's just going to that dude's Rolex or that's filling filling his, his Mercedes, I'm not giving. You need to give. Find a church that there's accountability and transparency. Now, in regards to our church, when it comes to accountability, I want you to know that Calvary 316 has two elders that are involved with the Sunday collection of the tithes and offerings so that there's safeguards from abuse. There's also two people involved when it comes to the depositing and logging of the money. Not to mention every month there's a financial review team that goes through every line of the books. There's not one person in secret taking care of the finances. There's not one person making all the decision. It's a function of our elders because we find that to be biblical. 
Aside from this, we have two financial meetings a year that's open to the public for the express purpose of giving an account to you for the money you've given to God and how those funds have gone to the church. In regards to transparency, I want to take a moment and explain how the leadership of Calvary 316 allocates the resources you've given to God for the specific purpose of caring for the needs of the church. In order to ensure we appropriately allocate these resources, the church leadership of Calvary 316 has designated five financial foundational needs for the church, and we've ordered them in regards to priority. So we've designated the needs, we've ordered them in priority, and the money goes accordingly. Our first need is a place to meet on Sunday. I mean, we believe that providing a place for the church, which is us, not the building, but where we can meet, worship God, study his word, practically minister to the kids and other, other needs of the fellowship is an essential expense, which is why the first checks that we write every month pay the bills, pay the mortgage, and help maintain the facility. So our first need is a place to meet on Sunday. Our second need, which is an important need, but secondary to the first one, is a full-time pastor. And we believe that paying a pastor a fair salary to, so that he has time to minister to the practical needs of the congregation, run the organization of the church, as well as effectively prepare the teaching of God's word is a worthwhile and necessary expense. Now, if we experience problems financially here at Calvary 316, our first need is the facility, which means that if I have to take a pay cut or not take a paycheck, so that we can pay the mortgage to have a place to meet, if I have to get another part-time job to help support myself so that we can exist as a church, that will happen. Need one, need two, in order of priority. Third need, I went like this, third need, <laughs> financial benevolence. As modeled by this church in Acts, it is a core responsibility of the local church to take care of the needs, the practical needs, of those that are less fortunate within our church community. Hey, people lose jobs, people run into hardships. We take funds after we've paid our bills and after we've supported a pastor because we believe that the best thing we can do for, for you to meet your needs is to have a pastor there to encourage you and support you. And then if there's funds, we'd like to give to you to help you through that. And we always place it within the accountability of a relationship. We don't dole out money to people walking by who go down and want to buy beer. We keep it in the context of a relationship within the community or a relationship with someone that has a connection to the community so that there's accountability with a relationship. Our fourth need, I keep messing up, fourth, is support for missions. After we've taken care of our own, we want to support people that are doing other work. And, and these needs vary from supporting community partnerships to domestic outreaches to international organizations, church planning endeavors. Hey, we exist because a church allocated resources to help us get on our feet. And we want to do the same with others. And then our fifth priority is saving for the future. Saving is an important way to plan for future growth. It's a prudent way of sustaining an emergency. But, and I want you to know, that saving for the future will never limit our current ministry effectiveness. There are some churches that tighten the belt to the point that they can't operate as the Holy Spirit would lead. Hey, Jesus could come back next week. So why do I care if there's a huge balance in the bank account? 
There's ministry to happen, people to reach with the gospel. We need to be prudent. We need to plan. I'm not saying we're crazy, but understand the premise. Plan for growth, sustain an emergency, but don't limit ministry effectiveness. So their generosity, it manifested. People were freely selling their possessions, bringing the proceeds to the apostles, allowing the apostles to distribute the financial resources appropriately. And now the result, great grace was upon them all nor was there any among them who lacked. The atmosphere of generosity, it produced two incredible results. Not only did God prove faithful to provide for all of their needs, the person giving and the person receiving, everyone's needs were taken care of. But we're also told, and I love this phrase, that great grace was upon them all. This great grace in the original, it's megas charis, or mega grace, great grace, big grace, gigantic grace, mega grace. See, in response to their generosity, God poured out on all of them more than enough grace, more than enough, more than enough undeserved merit, undeserved favor, undeserved blessing. As St. Francis of Assisi said, and as we sang this morning, for it is in giving that we receive. The Spirit was clearly active in this church, and it could be seen. They were bold to speak God's word. I hope you appreciate that this morning. This is not an easy topic to address, but it's one we need to, and we're bold enough to address it. Two, their unity. The Holy Spirit produced a unity and generosity. This morning, may the same be said of Calvary 316, but more specifically, may the same be said of you. And if you feel as though you're lacking in any, in, in any of these things, you pray, say, Lord, fill me with your spirit, because I want boldness, and I want to get along, I want community, and I want to be generous, I struggle, I want to be generous, the Holy Spirit rocked, and rattled, and rolled, and they were filled, and this is what came out, may it come out of you, may it come out of our church, so Father, we thank you for your word.